Hi, everyone. I'm Celia Keenan-Bolger, and this is Sunday Pancakes, a podcast to nourish your head and heart any day of the week. So I want to start out by saying that there is a lot happening in the New York theater community right now, and like all news cycles, things are constantly changing, which means that sometimes these episodes may not wholly reflect the events of the past week. We're facing some big questions around power and abuse in the workplace and whose responsibility it is to protect workers, and also what has been done to ensure that as we start to reopen, the BIPOC community feels like they're returning to a more equitable, just, and compassionate industry where representation on the inside reflects our culture on the outside. And I know that I've talked about this before, but the entire reason I wanted to make this podcast was for our community. I wanted to make it a place where we could talk about hard things. And so I am really trying to hold myself to that, even though there is a lot to process, and I think I probably will not be able to offer many answers. But what I can commit to is staying in the questions and the discomfort and asking you all to come along with me. Um, I want to acknowledge that this episode was recorded a few weeks ago, and there is so much inside of it that I think is useful for what we're trying to process right now. But if it sounds like we aren't addressing the current state of our community, it's because some of these inciting events hadn't happened yet. Okay, I am so grateful to you all for sticking with me as we try to ask these big questions of ourselves and our community. I am so excited to share this week's conversation. My guest today is Zachary Quinto. He's an Emmy-nominated actor who has the dream career of bouncing between television, film, and theater. You probably know him as Spock from the most recent Star Trek film franchise or from his television roles in Heroes, 24, American Horror Story, or In Search Of. But it's on the stage where I have gotten to see some of his most compelling and varied work. He starred in Angels in America and Smokefall off-Broadway in New York City and Boys in the Band and The Glass Menagerie on Broadway. In fact, my first real introduction to Zach was, I think, over the phone when he called me after finding out that we would be working together on The Glass Menagerie. And I remember walking down 7th Avenue in the middle of Times Square and thinking like, oh, I'm just talking to Zach Quinto on the phone. And it was an incredibly generous gesture and actually a great indicator of what the next two years would be like with him. We worked together on The Glass Menagerie out of town at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge where we got to play brother and sister. And I remember very early on in rehearsals feeling so intimidated by how articulate and intelligent he seemed. He had done all of this research on Tennessee Williams and he came to the table with so much knowledge about the play and the time period. But it was really in the six months that we were on the same floor of the Booth Theater with dressing rooms right next to one another where I really got to know Zach. I think 
when you work six days a week with someone, you get to see all of the parts of them. And by the end of that run, I felt like we were as close as actual siblings. Um, in those six months, I learned so much just watching him navigate his career and a level of fame that I had never had proximity to. But he also had this practice of self-care and self-improvement and dedication to living an examined life that had a really profound effect on me. I think he is as intelligent as he is insightful. He's as funny as he is deep. And so I am really happy to get to have this conversation with my friend Zach Quinto. Hi, Zach. I'm so grateful to be here. How are you doing? I'm healthy. Um, I am loved and I'm able to have this experience lately, which has been really unexpected, of course, but um, full of transformation and discovery and growth and ultimately gratitude. In a general sense, I think that the biggest lesson that's come for me out of this experience has been the lesson of surrender, mm. um, the lesson of detachment from our own self-generated expectations and the trust that comes with recognizing that we are exactly where we need to be and that any resistance to that thing is entirely futile <laughs> and uh and really the hotbed for a lot of dissatisfaction and unhappiness and misery. And we live in a culture in a time where that idea that what we don't have is what we need. Yes. Who we aren't is who we need to be. And that is just a recipe for disaster internally. So for me, this time has been about really stepping back and looking at yeah, there's the circumstances that the world shut down and we were all isolated and we had to navigate what that meant and all in different ways for those of us with puppies, for those of us with children, for those of us with jobs we then had to do from home, you know, with parents, with all kinds of different circumstances that vary from person to person. But in the broadest sense, we were given an opportunity to slow down and to look at things in a different way. And that's what I've tried to do. And you're like sweet spot do you think you lean more towards solitude or more towards no, no. yeah you're a, so so will you talk a little bit about either the loneliness or just what it felt like to not have other people to sort of either bounce things off of or just even to to inform your experience i've been lucky i don't think i've had to process things alone. I just processed them with other people differently. Mm -hmm. But I was lucky. I, I spent the first three months of quarantine with friends and on the East Coast. And then I moved to the West Coast um, in about uh, last June. And I lived by myself, but I have a really solid friend base in Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. we found ways to see one another and to be responsible and to be outside and to go for hikes and to be in people's backyards. And I didn't feel really alone, to be honest. I didn't feel like, yes, my experience was mitigated in that I couldn't go out to dinner, I couldn't take in-person meetings, a lot of things 
shifted to happening on computers, etc. But I didn't feel particularly lonely. I may have felt alone, uh-huh. but it was much more about solitude than it was about loneliness mm. for me. And I didn't what, feel how, lonely. What is the distinction on that? Just solitude in that you didn't, you weren't surrounded by other people as much as you usually were. Yes, I wasn't able to be as social. I wasn't able to be as integrated in a social fabric as I normally would be. Mm-hmm. But solitude for me is about um, being present in aloneness. And loneliness to me is about being rooted in a kind of longing for connection. I feel like we have both sort of gone through, when I just think about like who we were when we met and our relationship to sort of being social and going out, that I feel like we have both been on this journey of, that that it feels like we are in a different place now than we were then. Mm -hmm. And that this pandemic is like the next step of that somehow, or that like how, will you talk about just how you feel like you have moved through what even like having fun or being social with other people like has looked like over these over the years of your life Mm -hmm. well sobriety is a big part of my life now which isn't always been the case it certainly wasn't the case when we were doing the glass menagerie Um, nor mine (laughs) and i look back on that time with great fondness and same yeah, I mean, we had bourbon-fueled fun. I had never really drunk bourbon or any brown liquor, by the way. This is just a random aside. But I had never drunk bourbon or any brown liquor before we did the Glass Menagerie because uh, I was always, you know, a kind of a vodka gay. But uh, <laughs> but because Tennessee uh, only drank bourbon, really, uh, it, 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 I just opened myself up to it. And so I just remember that time in Cambridge, especially when we were all there and living there and working there together. And we would end up back at my apartment almost every night after the show. And we just had fifths of bourbon lining the counter in the kitchen. And that was a huge part of our experience. And, and that's indicative of, of my relationship to alcohol and other substances for a long time, um, before that. Um, and for a little bit of time after that. But um, but sobriety's become a huge part of my life. And so that's really changed a lot about my interactions with people and um, socializing. I remember you saying something about how you, your relationship to alcohol changed around heroes and just mm. what it felt like to suddenly have so much more attention and fame mm. that it felt like the only way to navigate all of that, or one of the ways to navigate it, was to have a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me think, like, if you don't have that, say, in a pandemic, then what do you turn to? Like, mm-hmm. what are the things that that you, besides, you know, good friendships, mm-hmm. but what else can you rely on? For me in my 20s, success and my ambition was the thing that I was serving above everything else. And so I was never going to let anything get in the way of that, which was in its own way, a kind of addiction, right? Um, Replacing a sense of intrinsic value with a kind of externalized value system. Uh, 
but that's that drive, that motivation was the thing that was of primary importance to me. And then once I achieved a certain level of success, not only was alcohol something that I could use to help me navigate it, but it was something that became a part of the lifestyle of the success itself. Oh, of course. So I found myself ultimately at at events multiple times a week that had open bars and 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 you know, drugs and alcohol are a huge part of our industry. And so I found myself in a situation where the first vodka soda, which I would drink within the first five minutes of any event, was to kind of loosen me up and let me scan the room. And then from there, it was just habitual. It just became habitual. And I mm-hmm. drank fast and I could hold it. And people rarely could tell that I was tipsy, let alone as drunk as I was. So that was something that fed itself. And then it became its own journey that I eventually woke up to. But that's a different podcast. Um, this this idea of what can we turn to is a big question. And, and I don't know what it would have been like if I was still drinking and using. I smoked a ton of pot as well. I don't know, just to give my like, I don't know what it would have been like if I had still been like, luckily I had removed those crutches well before the pandemic. And so um, I found things to replace them with over time. Meditation's a big one for me, big, big one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I play the banjo, creative outlets. So let's translate that into creative outlets of different kinds for people. Um, friends, like you mentioned, making time mm-hmm. for friends, sharing how I'm feeling. Therapy's a big deal. I just feel like um, giving myself outlets that are providing me with positive feedback or feedback from mm-hmm. a place of compassion is is really been that's really been a cornerstone of this time for me and my dogs, always my dogs. I want to come back to your dogs, but I feel like I think we had a conversation, I don't know, six months ago, where we were talking about what it looks like. I mean, I think so much of my life, just so much of my life has been centered around like, what is the reward at the end of the day? And if it's a day where I'm not working and I'm just being a stay-at-home mom, that means like that work, the work of being a mother mm-hmm. is is hard. And so that glass of wine is paramount to Mm -hmm. getting me through the day and I would start thinking about it you know around I don't know 11 and being like is 2 p.m too early (laughs) is 3 p.m and I I just decided last year to take a year of drinking off because Mm -hmm. I was like let me just see what comes up and it was so uncomfortable in so many ways like there was it was not one of those things where I'm like God, it feels so great not to drink. I was like, this sucks. Mm -hmm. And this feeling of no reward, of of nothing except myself Mm -hmm. to sort of process all of the hard things, except that then I got through the year and I felt really proud of myself (laughs) where I was like, I did all of that without a lot of help, except like, I think I had a lot of conversations with John, with my husband that I don't know that I would have had, or that I think alcohol sometimes in a marriage helps you have difficult conversations Mm. where I'm like, this is something I haven't really wanted to bring up, but let me just dive into this thing while we're like two glasses of wine in, which is just like never a great way to have that Mm. conversation. But this year I was like, oh, you have to 
put on your big girl pants and have this conversation about something hard without any help. And I think there's this idea that I have sometimes had that's like, if you just have a cleaner life, then things will open up and be, it will be so much better for you. But of course, like the journey of getting there is so uncomfortable that you have, for me at least, that I think you have to weather a fair amount of self-analysis and just, you know, the things that come up and figure out, okay, where am I going to put all that? Mm. Well said. We live in a culture and again, in a time where we're constantly reinforced with the idea that we need to look outside of ourselves for reward, for validation, for comfort. The notion of generating those ideas and those feelings from within ourselves has become really foreign to a lot of us, especially in, in the Western world, uh, in the corporatized capitalist world. And that discomfort is something that didn't just appear overnight. That discomfort <laughs> has been accumulating for decades in our case, you know, and in, in, in my case, um, you know, I, I was 38 when I stopped drinking and, uh, and that, that didn't just all it didn't just all revert overnight it, mm. you know i had to work through and i'm still very much working through the challenges and the constructs that i've built and that were built by others around me and dismantling them and taking responsibility for them and looking at them and shining light into the corners that are the darkest and mm -hmm. I have a friend who once said that you never know how dirty your house is until you start to clean it. And how true is that, you know, getting behind the the bureau and the dresser and lifting the rugs and mm. looking under the couches. Like that's when you see all the stuff that you've just pushed under there. And that's that process of healing and that process of self exploration, discovery, growth, and expansion is a lifelong process. Some people arrive at it early and some people don't have the impediments or the hurdles of addictive behavior, addictive behaviors or, um, or, or substance relationships that, that complicate it. Um, but for those of us who do, um, there is a real awakening that is a part of going into those scary and dark places. And I, I'm most grateful for the need to go there and the, and and the fortitude to go there. I think so much of what I can't necessarily process on my own somehow finds its way into the work, even if the work has nothing to do with what I'm like grappling with, but that it's being put through the processor. Mm -hmm. And then not having that this past year, like not mm -hmm. going through so many hard things and being like, but where is the where is the creative space to like mm -hmm. turn this over? Yeah. Has been so painful. Painful, really miss it. I really agree. I totally agree with that. Um, that's never been more true for me than with the Glass Menagerie actually. That that experience and that that process creatively of diving into the psycho psychology and the psychodynamics of those characters uh, was the most resonant to my own life um, that parallel was the closest that I've ever experienced and uh, and was so healing in its own way, uh, in large part because of you and Cherry and Brian, of course, but you and Cherry representing, you know, those primary family relationships. Um, it was so powerful and so important for me in my evolution, not only as an actor and an artist, but as a person, too. 
Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think it's, I talk about, I've talked about this with a few people who have lost parents that like, I don't have, I have never felt like real clear messages or presence of my mom who died, you know, 20 years ago. But there is some sort of communing that happens on stage with her. I mean, she's not there, but like I am suddenly able to go into something that is not available to me Mm. when I'm not on stage that I am so grateful for. And I think, you know, sometimes people will say like, oh, you, you know, you have such a big heart when when I watch you on stage, you have such a big heart. And I'm like, I think that I don't even get to be in control of that. That, that there is something that happens that is outside of me that gets to go to places that I I'm either don't let myself go to or I don't want to go to in my normal life. But that when you're an actor, you actually do get to sort of, you know, again, like clean that house and go mm-hmm. into those corners, but in somebody else's skin or as a different character that I just think is so helpful. And I think we're also part of a lineage. We're also part of something that is so much bigger than we are, both uh, in, in our creative lives and also in our personal lives. I'm going to circle back to those dogs. <laughs> I think there is something spiritual about mm-hmm. my witnessing your relationship with your dogs. And it was the first time that I had ever been like, whoa, this is an, this feels... This sounds like a cuckoo could shoot thing to say, but they, I was like, these dogs feel like an extension of my friend, like mm. not just in their, you know, that they're always around and that he feeds them and cares for them and that they <laughs> love him. But like, I think sometimes, you know, when I talk about struggles inside of motherhood and somebody will say, you know, I have a pet, which I know is not the same. And I'm like, <laughs> but I, I think sometimes we, we like sell that relationship a little bit short that that the relationship with animals and and what they do for us and what they what shows up in our relationships to them is is as profound as having a child in some cases even if they don't require the same amount of care. Mm-hmm. But will you just talk about those dogs for a little bit? Mm. Well, sure. You knew Noah mm-hmm. and Skunk when we were doing Glass Menagerie, and I brought them to Cambridge. They were with us at RT and then to New York, of course, when we when we moved the play there. Um, Noah has since dropped his body and is floating around and within me all the time. And Skunk is still around. Um, I've since gotten a new dog. And the story behind it, actually, which I don't have ever... I told you the story, didn't I? Yes. The story behind me getting my new dog, River, uh, kind of illustrates, I think, in a lot of ways what you're talking about. So uh, I was in Los Angeles... I'll be as brief as I can about this. I've told it many times, and sometimes I can draw it out, so I'll try to be concise. (laughs) Um, I was in L.A. in January 2020 on a work trip. I was there for three weeks just um, doing stuff. Um, And my best friend at the time, well, she's still my best friend, but at the time she was living uh, just nearby Pasadena. And Pasadena Humane Society is where I adopted Noah, the dog Mm. that you knew, who I had for 14 years and was in so many ways an anchor for me, a spirit guide. I mean, he was just such a, a stalwart, wise companion. And I was driving to visit my best friend, and I was passing the exit off the freeway that I would take to go to the Pasadena Humane Society. And I at once was overwhelmed with a sense of Noah and Noah's spirit and the memory of going and getting Noah and finding Noah and adopting Noah and having him for four. Like, it was almost like 
Noah's life flashed before my eyes and our mm. relationship flashed before my eyes. And I, I really acknowledged it as I was driving and I got to my best friend's house and, and I really felt drawn to the pound. And I thought, uh, I really want to go take a stroll through the Pasadena Humane Society. I was not in the market for a second dog, but I thought, let me just check it out. Um, if even just to remember the cage that Noah was in when I found him. Mm. I got to my best friend's house. I told her this. I said, I don't know, is this weird? Do you want to go to the pound today? And she was like, that sounds so much fun. Let's do it. So we got into the car. And I said to her, I said, I don't know why I'm feeling so much dog energy. And I'm feeling this really strong connection to Noah. This is what's motivating this desire. And she said, it sounds so much fun. Let's do it. So we got into my car to drive from her house to the Pasadena Humane Society. We got three blocks from her house. And I pulled up to a stop sign. And I looked to the left. And standing on the side of the road was this scruffy little three-month-old German Shepherd puppy who looked up at me and I looked at him and we locked eyes and he stood there and stared at me and I looked at my friend and I said, are you seeing this? Like, is this my dog? And she was like, I have no idea. So I turned and he watched me as I turned the car and I pulled up to across the street from the curb he was standing on and I opened my door and he ran to the back of this house and he peeked around the corner and kept looking at me, but he was keeping his distance. It was clear that he was interested, but trepidatious. Mm -hmm. And so I simply sat in the yard and and I sat there for about 10 minutes and I just kept saying, it's okay, buddy, it's okay. And he had no, and, and, and eventually after about 10 minutes, I decided to stand up and try to approach him. And as soon as I stood up, he came bounding across the yard and he literally rolled over on his back at my feet and gave me his belly at which point i just didn't even think but i just scooped him up and put him in my car and i was like act now ask questions later um but he had no tag he had no collar he had no identification um i took him immediately to the pet store and got him food he clearly hadn't eaten in days and i then took him immediately to the vet and he had no microchip and then I took him to um, get him a bath and buy him a crate. And then I brought him back to my hotel and he's been my dog ever since. I looked, I did in, in my own sort of defense because people are like, oh, so you stole someone's dog. And I was like, no, he had no, dis like if you have a puppy, you have to assume the puppy is going to get away or get out. Right. You have to, you know, he had no. And we checked the lost pet boards for 10 days after I found him, and, and uh, nobody ever posted anything about him. And so he's been my dog ever since, River, <laughs> River Quinto. But to say that there was something in me that was conscious of dog energy, I, I gave it language. I, I shared it with my friend. Like mm -hmm. There was something about being attuned to nature, for lack of a better word, that I think... Um, gave me a little bit of insight into what was happening and what my experience was about to be. Um, and, and that's, I think, a little bit of where the, the, the spiritual kind of connection with animals exists. But that's not unique to animals. That's, that's all around us. And that's sort of the larger picture, I think, of what we're talking about a little bit here. But I think also I saw that I, you, you are, you're tapped in, you were one of the first person, people that I observed not only working from a place of like great clarity about your career, about your personal life, you have really good boundaries, you're just, you know what work you're drawn to, but you are also 
not afraid to lean into intuition or um, just messages, I think, mm. about where you are meant to be. And I think, you know, sometimes, like we've been talking about, we can be at odds with those messages and we mm. <laughs> we make the wrong decisions. But that I think you, I don't know that I had ever observed somebody, I remember in Glass Menagerie just being like, wow, I'm watching somebody operate on many levels that I didn't really know were possible, which is that it's not enough to just like be, you know, bullish about your career and be on the phone with your agents and have, you know, the conversations that need needed to be had, which I also observed. And I was like, oh, this is how this is how, how people do get things done, which was also very helpful to me. But that there is another part of it that has to be guiding you. And I think do you do you think that that's always been intact that you were like I'm I have a good inner voice or I have a good intuition or was that cultivated over time like how are you how are you in touch with that Well let me first say like that's super kind of you and I appreciate that you've seen that side of me and that side of me exists but I don't want to perpetrate an illusion that it exists exclusively or consistently <laughs> it is a real ebb and a flow and as evidenced by the fact that I made a really bad decision at the end of the glass menagerie to go from that profound and rewarding enriching experience and and turn around directly into another project literally the day after we closed the play i got on a plane and flew to berlin to shoot a movie for three and a half months that i never should have done and and there were a lot of red flags coming up for me as I was contemplating that decision. And I just made the conscious choice to plow right through them. And I suffered the consequences of that. I will say, I don't often plan. I'm not one, I'm not a planner. I'm not mm -hmm. like, oh, now I need to do this, or now I need to do that, or I need to do this kind of thing. Or I do have a sense, and I always have had a sense that I'll make decisions based on what feels right, ultimately. Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes business factors into them. And like at the end of that experience of Glass Menagerie, which was all in, we did it what? We did it about two and a half months in Cambridge and then we did it like six months on Broadway, but there was like a four month break in between. So it was really about a year Yeah. Um, where that's all I really did. I think I had a press tour in, in, the, in the hiatus there, but I didn't really do any other acting work. And so by the end of the run of that play, I was like, oh my God, I haven't done a movie. I'm, I'm, how am I relevant in the studio system? Like I need to do a studio. Mm -hmm. Like, ugh, it's just like bad idea genes to use those as templates for decision-making. And, and that's what I did. And I ended up, you know, in a situation that was, was really challenging, not fulfilling. Um, and, uh, and that was on me. Yeah. I do think that thing of having an experience, especially a good experience and I think especially in the theater, like it happened in To Kill a Mockingbird where suddenly everybody's like, you got something lined up? You got something lined up? And I was like, no, I don't. And not in a proud way. I was like, you know, everybody was booking pilots. Everybody was doing their thing. And I was just like, I have worked so hard. And the only place my brain could go was what is this job going to do for me for the next job? Instead of you just did a big job take go lie down polish that tony <laughs> i couldn't get don't let there. it collect dust but i think in a way this last year i was like this is what it feels like and like even hearing you say you know i have the thought will i ever work again and it's like what comes up 
what comes up for you when you think like when you think that wh- where do you go are you like am i gonna have to find something else or am i gonna like do you really believe that or is that like mm. uh lately i feel i've been and this comes from that lens of existential despair mm-hmm. filtered through that lens of existential despair but i have been grappling with a sense of uh inadequacy uh, irrelevance um I mean, those are, they're big, they're big, um, and, and they're not unique to me and they're not unique to actors. They, Mm -hmm. you know, they're human conditions, but, but also how, how, where's my heart? Where's my, where's my heart? Where's my passion? And does it still exist in the same form that it used to Mm -hmm. chasing the next job, wanting the net I, I don't i can't i can't and on some levels i simply can't be bothered to keep up with the fame game as much as i may be used to and that's an interesting notion at this age at you know 43 about to be 44 priorities change and shift and and giving them room to do that and not adhering so tightly to the way we think things should be based on the way things used to be is actually quite a gift that there is freedom and vulnerability and power in that idea of surrender mm. that it is in surrendering that we find our strength actually and that's what i'm really sitting in right now above everything else so if i work again that'll be a great gift and if i don't i'm cultivating hopefully a fertile landscape in which other gifts can grow um i'm reading this book right now that i want to recommend to you oh, please. Uh, it was recommended to me by our mutual friend susan blackwell oh sure um, she knows good books yeah she knows good books and knows good um good good um what does she know she knows a lot but <laughs> she knows really good resources for the creative process mm. and so one of the things that i've been talking about with her is resistance and she recommended this book to me called the war of art by stephen pressfield and I really can't recommend it highly enough. It really delves into what resistance is as related to creativity, um, where it comes from, how to mm. identify it, the many different insidious forms that it can adopt and will adopt and does adopt, uh, and then moves into how to, to overcome it and, and, and integrate it. I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet. I'm just still relishing the identification of what resistance is. I think you just experienced a huge loss Mm. and I think I remember when my mom died all I could I was so grateful to have work and that it felt like that was a way that I could both sort of as we've talked about process but also just kind of continue in my life in a way that felt uh I don't know normal yeah yeah my mom died in february um and she had been sick for a long time but the experience of going through not only her illness but also her death was easily the most profound experience in my life and i was so lucky to be able to be with her she actually i say that she didn't die of covid but she died because of it she got covid in december she survived it. Um, she was hospitalized for three weeks, and then she ended up um, coming through. And yet, she was weakened so significantly that she was never really able to recover. And so, um, 
we made the decision shortly after she got out of the hospital to enroll her in a hospice care program and provide comfort care for her. She was in an assisted living facility, but when we decided to to um, go the hospice route, it lifted the visitation restrictions and I was able to go be with her. And I sat with her for five days and held space for her. And at a time when millions of families around the world have lost loved ones without even being able to say goodbye, let alone be at their side, um, it was such a gift. And I will say it was the catalyst for simply the most profound transformation that I've ever witnessed or experienced. That idea, I've never been with somebody through the dying process. It was just her and me in her room. I spent a lot of years resenting um, the position that I held in my mom's life. And, you know, my dad died when I was very young. And so I became in some ways responsible for my mom emotionally and um, and I and I really came to resent that, and um, and I always knew on some level that it would come down to her and me. I don't know why. There was something from a very young age where I always knew that I would be responsible, and I was. I was really responsible for her in many ways in her life, and uh, and through all of that resentment, when it, when when it actually came down to it, it was truly the greatest honor of my life to be able to show up in that way and um and uh it was it was profound and it was beautiful when you first shared with me this sort of your experience of being with her i think it almost transformed the way that i thought about my own mom dying because it was so it did not feel like what you just experienced and that was for all kinds of reasons but that my overwhelming feeling was sort of fear and sadness sort of coupled with needing to be strong and I think hearing you talk about what that was like for you it made me so emotional because it in a way reframed not like I'm rewriting history but that I'm like there were things that I couldn't see as that was happening because I was caught up in a role that I decided to take on mm -hmm. that in your retelling of all of that, I got a tiny window into. So I'm just, I'm really grateful for you sharing that story and also just sharing your time and, and having this conversation with me. Nothing makes me happier than spending time with you. Um, I just am always so grateful because our conversations are always enjoyable, but they're never frivolous. <laughs> and that's what you bring out in people. You know, you really do have a way of seeing things that is sensitive, but very emotionally intelligent. And I think it's what you bring to audiences when they witness your work. And I'm so happy that you're sharing that part of yourself with an audience in this podcast format, mm. and that I could be a part of a conversation that hopefully resonates on some level for people um, in this relatively difficult and incredibly unprecedented time and uh, a time that hopefully we're slowly drawing to the end of <laughs> please god because i can't wait to do another play with you oh me too zach me this is too. for sure that conversation gave me so much to reflect on i don't even know what to pull out of it except that i i do keep coming back to this idea of surrender and i think 
that can be difficult for so many reasons. And I also know that in the times when I have been able to do it, it has given me a sort of courage and feeling about myself that I actually am capable of things that feel scary or feel unknown. And so I'm just thinking about in the moments when we are looking outside of ourselves and comparing ourselves or trying to surround ourselves with things that make us feel better, what we can do to sort of tap back into this idea that we have everything we need inside of us. And if we can just return to that source and trust in it, through that will come freedom and enlightenment and a powerful sense of self. Okay, the weekly roundup for this episode is going to start with the incredible writer, activist, and performance poet Sonia Renee Taylor. I think in the last episode, I used the phrase collective compassion, and she was the first person that I had ever heard use that term. And I first found her listening to Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, and where she was talking about her book, The Body is Not an Apology. There's a workbook that goes along with this book, and it is all based around this idea of radical self-love. And it's not only been helpful for me, just for myself, but I've also thought about it so much as I'm trying to understand the artist's role in reshaping an industry. And I keep asking this question of whose responsibility is it? Is it the seemingly disposable actors who have always been at the bottom rung of the ladder of power? Is it the theater owners who are at the very tip top of the ladder? Is it the producers, the directors? And as I was thinking about this, I remember Sonia Renee Taylor saying, you got to get rid of that ladder. So I think she is an unbelievable resource as we are trying to look inside of ourselves and then affect change, both, you know, in our community and and in the world beyond our community. And just in um, this, the second part of the weekly roundup is meditation, because as I'm thinking about radical self-love, I think we need tools to help get us closer to that. And I meditate every day. Zach obviously talks about meditation in our conversation. I I did a course and I do transcendental meditation. I know Zach does Vedic meditation, but there are so many apps and um, and ways that you can figure out what works for you. I have friends who love 10% Happier. I have friends who use Calm. And when I started, I have to say, I found it all pretty frustrating and I just had to really look around and see what worked for me. And now I really don't know what I would do without it. And then finally, I think you should listen to the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett, where she interviews Brian Dorries about his public art project, The Theater of War. He's been doing this work in the community and with actors for years and years. And this last year, he brought the project to Zoom. And he is just looking for new ways to engage with healing and grieving and growing. And one of the first things that's said in this interview is, Remember, you are not alone in this room, and you are not alone across time, which just really made me think of 
the part of the conversation with Zach where we talk about lineage and being a part of something bigger than ourselves and how theater is such an amazing tool in opening all of us up. All right, that's all for this week. If you are feeling like you have a question or something you want to hear me talk about, you can email sundaypancakespod at gmail.com. You can always leave a rating or review for us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. That's extremely helpful. And I cannot wait for the next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. This week's episode was recorded in New York on the lands of the Mohican and Lenape peoples. Sunday Pancakes is produced by me and Rachel Sussman of Plate Spinner Productions with editing and engineering by Tim Kashani and Ali Rice of Apples and Oranges Arts. The theme music is by Gavin Creel. Special thanks this week to John Conley, Susan Blackwell, and Laura Camion. Sunday Pancakes is distributed by Playbill. <laughs> <laughs>